begin. I'm going to start with prayer and then a little bit of an intro review and then into concupiscence today. And you'll understand why this is picked out by the report to discuss. The concept you'll recognize, the word you may not, but the concept you definitely will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to study um, your words, uh, content on uh, human sexuality, especially as it's been laid out for us in this report. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, direct us by the truth of your word, not by tradition or uh, the way we might feel about something or the way culture see- speaks to it, but just to honestly be uh, humble to receive what your word says in this, in this regard. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So once again, the reason for the class on human sexuality that we have endeavored to uh, engage in a um, couple reasons, but basically for personal um, understanding and practice, to know what the Bible says and then to be able to practice it in our lives. That's what we want to do is honor Scripture in our lives. And um, there will be times when the predo- predominant or prevailing message around us will be opposed to Scripture. So the more we know what Scripture says, the more we will be equipped or be better prepared. We will be equipped to live the way God calls us to live, no matter what is going on around us. It also equips us to be able to give a good answer rather than to be reactionary. Uh, Because when we're reactionary and defensive, that's uh, usually when we give our weakest argument. Recognizing God has to do a work in people to believe his word. Um, His word gives some helpful complexity about the issue that actually gives it more credibility as we explain it, even if someone doesn't end up agreeing. So I think having a thoughtful careful understanding of what the whole of Scripture says helps us to present ourselves in a way that honors God. It's not a simplistic matter, and we recognize that. Um, defensiveness and reaction sometimes make it, makes it seem like we're saying it's simplistic, and it's not. Also, we just need to be ready for what might be coming as the developing um, storm and culture uh, brews. Uh, this matter of human sexuality, it's at the forefront of our cultural moment. That's just the way it is. For a moment, but that's what it is for us in this era. And if you really want to know more about the particulars of this, go to Carl Truman's book, The Rise of the Modern Self, and it gives you the history, the philosophical history for how we've gotten to this point. So I commend that to you. Um, it really helps us. Um, but the study that we're studying is the PCA, our denomination's um, study report. There were, there were uh, six people commissioned, maybe eight people um, commissioned to to unpack the biblical teaching with regard to the current cultural moment and arguments that were being made. Um, and it had in particular was dealing with same-sex attraction issues. Um, and so that's what the, the focus was. But then a wider study develops because many things fall under the pale of what we're studying. Um, so that's the, the reason the study came about. It's a result of questions and debates, even within our own denomination, about the biblical teaching on human sexuality. I think it represents an excellent contemporary study on the matter. Um, Our Confession of Faith does a great job with the simple outline of what the Bible teaches, but as far as the particular applications in a given era, that's what's helpful about a a modern study like this. Um, The main issue that's kind of at debate isn't about, um, it isn't as far as same-sex attraction stuff goes, it's not about saying that uh, homosexual practice is biblical. It's just describing 
um, a debate that happens within, among believers where some say that you can't change that orientation, therefore someone can be identified as a gay, celibate Christian, and they live their life that way, and it's okay to identify that way and talk that way and so forth. They just can't engage in actual practice. Now, the history of that start is always into full-on acceptance of homosexual practice. That's been the history of other um, traditions that start with that argument. They always end up in, that, in full acceptance. That's the problem that most of us who oppose that kind of uh, position see with it, among other things. But we think it's just not a biblical position either because it denies the totality of what the gospel can do, even with our desires, or can help us... Um, to follow God's will, even when we're working against our desires sometimes. I mean, I don't, sometimes, you know, we fight against sinful passions that are really difficult and we still feel bad after we, like we still want to lie about this or whatever it may be, or um, we don't ever stop feeling that way, but we know we shouldn't, so we don't. And there's similarities there across the board of sinful desires, which we'll talk about um, today a bit as well. So we started with marriage. What's the, the, the parameters for marriage in the Bible? That becomes the model that you test everything by. So when people come up with hypotheticals, is this allowable, is this allowable, is this allowable? It's on the basis of the marriage model that God gives. That's how you discern whether it is or not. And marriage is between one woman and one man. Um, and it's, it's supposed to be a lifelong, sorry, I don't know what's happening, but it's happening. Keep going, yeah. Easy for you to say. Keep going. But anyways, um, so with that, when you see everybody jump, like it's hard to not, not, I try to act like it didn't happen, but you all look really freaked out sometimes when it occurs. Some of you wake up, which is a good thing, so I'm not, that's not a bad thing. But marriage being the model helps us then discern the rest. Then we start to break down some of the details of the debate or the argument that are important. What does it mean to be created in the image of God, and how does that, how does that um, affect uh, the way we uh, relate to God and relate to one another and our mission and so forth, what we're called to do. What does original sin do? How badly are we affected by sin? And we spent a lot of time in this in the book of Genesis, and we're spending time on it here. This is a, a critical piece to understanding um, uh, why sin is such a monster to us because we're so affected by it. Even as regenerate people, people who trust in Christ, we constantly struggle with our sinful um, affections and attractions and such. And it's a, it's a, it's a uh, struggle we have all the way until glory, until we go to heaven. Um, so this is important. Then we talked about desires because we want to recognize that from our corrupted nature, our desires and our actions flow. But a desire is an action in itself because your mind is mulling over that which is illicit or that which God has called sin. And so that in itself, that desire itself is sin. Um, it, it turns into other actions that, be, that compound and become worse, but they're, and they're sin too. But we're saying the whole of it's sin, not just the actions that flow out of it. And that's what we spoke of a bit last week, and that's kind of where we pick up now. So a correct, honest, biblical understanding of sinfulness of sin it will ultimately drive us to our Savior. That's the beauty of a study on sin. Uh, when we study the totality of sin's destruction and its impact, we only have one place to turn, and that's to turn to the righteousness of Christ, to Him. So a clear and honest picture of sinfulness will help us um, go to Christ, but also help us to be more patient with people when they're struggling with sin. When we are struggling with sin, we could be more patient and less judgmental towards one another. It doesn't mean we don't confront it or help deal with it, but we're not um, immediately hopping on and condemning because we're recognizing the power of sin is still there. And we're all together going to Christ for the remedy. The remedy the very first time when we come to him, 
for the forgiveness of our sins in general, but then as we come to him regularly with our specific sins that we recognize as they rise up in us and they happen and we, we do them, then we still go to Jesus. It's the same answer. The first thing that brought you to Christ, recognition of your sin, need for a Savior, is the same thing that helps you battle sin um, every day. That's the, that's the Christian life. We're here to encourage one another in that fact. Not rest in any one sin. Not say, you know, this is a sin that I can never defeat or this is a sin that really is, has me. It owns me now, and I can't get out of it. That's not true of any sin for a Christian. I don't mean that you won't always still battle it, but that's not the same as saying it owns you or it identifies you. There's a difference, because you are now in Christ and in his righteousness. So this is um, a bit of a preface. Uh, We left off on the matter of our desires, and we talked about um, Paul, especially throughout his epistles, talks about these sinful passions that we have. And he describes them as sin themselves. Uh, It says in Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So sin's passions. Um, That means that uh, the, the activities and the thoughts and the passions and desires we have are sinful in themselves. Peter says the same thing. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Um, also, uh, it says in the statement, in this, just before the one we're looking at today, we affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. So this is uh, an important preface for what we're going to talk about now. Uh, and this is, this is a concept that was developed kind of in the medieval times, uh, concupiscence is the way you pronounce it, and it's a description that comes from a Latin word to describe uh, in more detail something about the desires we have. And it was an attempt on the Roman Catholic theologians prior to the Reformation um, to try to quantify um, how to read our desires. Now, let me read the statement, and then I'll go back and explain that a little bit, because this, out of all the, the 12 points of the report, this one in particular is addressing a specific theological school of thought that comes from Roman Catholicism, but it's practiced, or it's, it's often explained by evangelicals, uh, their feelings and desires, um, their experience of same-sex attraction, for instance, they'll describe it the same way as the Catholics describe concupiscence, and that's why it's important to know this concept and recognize why it was rejected biblically by the reformers. Um, and that's, that's the reason for, the back, for this topic being brought up in the midst of this study. It's, it's a di- uh, deeper dive on the concept of desire. Okay, here's the statement. We affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence whereby disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without consenting a consenting act of the will. In other words, you can have the desire as long as you don't actually do it and feed it, then it's not sin. That's important. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful. Nevertheless, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction describe their desires as arising in them unbidden and unwanted. We also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors, which always include our own sin nature and may include being sinned against in the past, as with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust, pornographic addictions, and all abusive sexual behavior. The actions of others, though never finally determinative, can be significant and influential. It's very complex what uh, brings a person to sense their orientation or their identity in this way. 
This should move us to compassion and understanding. Moreover, it is true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion at the same time. We all experience sin at times as a kind of very uh, voluntary servitude. It's a very extensive statement. Moving over here now because the sun's coming that way. Sorry. Um, And so this concept of concupiscence um, emerges. It's it's been an ongoing debate of how to deal with one's, you know, when do you call it sin? When you think it or when you do it and so forth. Now, why would this be an issue? Well, in history... Um, it's, it has been. In, in, Roman, uh, in the Roman Catholic history of the word and concept, it develops on the basis, uh, you know, one error, in my view, begets another. Now, backdrop, I grew up Roman Catholic. I'm not, like, straw man arguing. I grew up in it and went every week. I wasn't going, like, once a month or just Easter and Christmas. I was there every week, my whole upbringing, till I was in my teens. And when I uh, trusted Christ, I started going to an evangelical church where the Currys went, and I would go to Catholic church Sunday morning, and then I would go to their church at night. I'd never missed a Sunday, um, so I was studying, and I went to Catholic religious instruction, CCD class. Um, I had many a meeting with priests and, uh, priests and nuns over my time. Um, had to do homeschool version of my confirmation because they were tired of me asking questions. That's a true story. Um, so uh, whenever I get on other people for asking questions, you might, I'm just glad my mom keeps quiet about that. Because my mom grew up Methodist, and she had to basically sit with me with this Catholic instruction book and explain to me what the Catholics thought. So I'm not coming to you having, as some Baptist who just you know, study what Catholics did. And I'm, I'm gonna, I, I, I know the catechism. I learned Pope John Paul II's catechism as I was leaving. So all that to say... Um, the development of their doctrine of concupiscence comes from an erroneous doctrine of salvation. And the doctrine that they have for salvation is a combination of grace and works. And what it is is this. You are baptized. When you are baptized, that washes away original sin. So you no longer have original sin at your fault. Now, they still recognize, well, wait a minute, everybody still sins after this. So they developed a doctrine that would explain that there's still some stuff you got trouble with, and you have a bent towards sin, but your original sin was washed away. So that's the first step in your salvation. And then the, the, the rest of the steps of your salvation are by following certain things that the church gives as rights. Now, where you fall short, and this is where Protestants get it wrong sometimes. They think there's no grace involved in, um, in the Catholic system. Well, technically there's not. If you, I mean, grace is real grace. But the point they'll say is, yes, no person will actually finally um, act out all these things perfectly. So you do depend on God to fill in some of the grace. And so where you fall short in following the sacraments, whether it be confession or uh, your first communion and taking the the sacraments, uh, penance and so forth, doing confession all the time, you do all those things to maintain the best you can so that you have merit before God. Now, God has to help you do it, but you, you are developing merit before God. And then where you fall short, he fills it in with the merits of Christ. And so if you fall, if I get to 60%, he fills in 40% of what Christ did, but, or Christ's merit. Um, Whereas the Protestant or Reformed view, the Protestant view, or the, the view of the, the Bible and what it was well before the Middle Ages, because many of the earlier uh, church theologians had this right, we talk about a system of imputed uh, righteousness that is credited or legally credited to us. So none of our works could ever be meritorious. Zero of them, none of them. They have to be exchanged with Christ's righteousness. So Christ must take my righteousness, which is filthy rags, it's sin. He must take it, credit to him, dies for it on the cross, and he credits to me his full righteousness. 
So I'm in Christ now. And so my salvation is based on God not looking at my 60-40 and I'll fit. No, it's, he looks at me and sees Christ. None of, he sees none of my works for salvation. Not one. He sees Christ and he has to accept me because I'm in his son. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the view. But the Catholic view is this one that's a combo of grace and works and God will make up some difference. Hopefully, you know, if things work and you're devout and so forth. Now, with that thought process, you can understand why someone might want to parse what's a sin and what's not a sin. Well, wait a minute. Is it, is it thinking it or is it doing it? Now, I would just add for no extra charge that one of the reasons in, in sexual sin will, will be a problem for, for uh, every believer needs to deal, it deals with it on some level, is affected by it. They're, you yourself are pulled towards it or have been affected by it because it's something someone's done to you. And that's true in the church, too, in church organizations. We are guilty of, of, of harboring sexual sin and abusers and so forth. We see this. When I say we, I mean Christians in general. Organizations, we, we have too high of a view of ourselves sometimes. Oh, we would never do that, and this happens. But the Roman Catholics have become especially, especially bad at this because of their system and because of their belief. They have a high view of the church, they have a high view of the priesthood, and they have a low view of sin, and that leads to the most rampant sexual abuse you could ever possibly imagine. I speak from knowing experience what people tell me, friends of mine that grew up in the... I was so glad we could not afford going to the local Catholic school, as it's turned out. And if you go the world over and see what's happened in the priesthood, and I think one of the things that's happened, and this happened in the Middle Ages, and Luther called it out, a man who who wants to be devout to the religion, has all sorts of lusts and whatever, just like men do, um, but they think that by going into the priesthood, they'll be able to bury it. Because it's not, it's not really the problem, my desire, it's my problem's actions, but if I go here, then I won't have a chance to, to act upon it. And what happens is they've got more chances than ever. And it becomes, it becomes a complete cesspool. I won't go further into this, but I have all sorts of documentation. This is not just fantasy. I have actual documentation of what goes on in Catholic seminaries even today. Now, I know you could say the same about the Baptist, not the same level, not at the same level. I promise not at the same level. And I'm saying that their view of sin and man and the church and everything leads you to even worse. Even with the, if we had the perfect view of it, we would still be, have trouble. Um, but when you have a bad view of sin and a high view of man, that is going to lead you to problems. So um, they developed this doctrine of concupiscence, especially in response to Luther Luther and the reformers really challenging them on their low view of sin. And so their response in the Council of Trent was to speak directly to it, and that's what we'll go with, is the things they said, out of the, out of the horse's mouth, so to speak. So let's look at the statement. We affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us uh, prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. I won't dwell on this long because we cover this with desires. It's a repeat about what we just studied about our desires. The desires you feel themselves are sinful and need to be repented of. Um, the section uh, then unpacks the idea more because of the Roman doctrine that I spoke of. So then it says, we reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence. I could say this a hundred times and still get it wrong the fourth, fifth time because it's so hard to say. Whereby disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without consenting, the consenting act of the will. So let me explain what the Roman position is on this a little bit, a little more. The Roman position describes that our thoughts and desires are not in and of themselves sinful themselves only if you act on them. Now, there are, there's a spectrum of debate among Roman theologians about this. I'm just giving you the main one we're countering. Because um, they'll, they'll break it down to how long do you have to think about something before it becomes sin? Because some will acknowledge, well, if you keep thinking of something, it's going to, well, at what point? And, they, and, they, and the, the various uh, groups of uh, uh, 
priestly schools will argue about that. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to go on the general here because we don't have time to get into those nuances. They view baptism as washing away original sin, so you have a fresh start, but then they acknowledge that something disordered still lingers from original sin. And here's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Yet certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, such as suffering, illness, and death, and such frailties inherent in life as weakness of character and so on, as well as an inclination to sin, uh, the tradition that calls concupiscence, or metaphorically the tinder for sin, since concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with, it cannot harm those who do not consent, consent but manfully resist it by the grace of Christ. It only harms us if we act out on it. That's what it's saying. Concupiscence is later defined in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of human reason. Because human reason, washed of original sin, should have capacity to say no to something. It's not rational to sin. Concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin. It unsettles man's moral faculties, and without being in itself an offense, inclines man to commit sins. It's not an offense in itself, your desires and your appetites and attractions, but it can lead you there. Again, they say baptism removes original sin, but does not free us from finding sin attractive, so concupiscence is the part of our human condition, the response to the allure of sin, but it is not sin in itself. So the person today that's arguing for side B Christianity or gay Christianity is saying that my sinful inclination towards same-sex attraction is not a sin. That's not a I'm a gay Christian. But I'm not going to act out on it because I know the Bible says you shouldn't. But even, it's okay to identify this way. It's who I am. And that's the argument. And their argument is an appeal to this idea of how you categorize desires and sins. Um, there were a variety, a variety of treatments of this doctrine over the course of the years leading to the Reformation in the 16th century. In Augustine, when you read some of what Augustine says, he's confusing at times on this topic, but I would say he primarily promotes kernels of thoughts that lead to a wrong thinking uh, about desires towards concupiscence, for sure. Um, the corruption of the Roman priesthood was largely due to a very deficient view of sin, as I mentioned. Um, this is a key point of address and attack for Luther because Luther saw the hypocrisy between those who are supposed to be the priests and then their lives. And he struggled with it himself. And he only found an answer for it when he had the, uh, an accurate view of sin and his need for the imputed righteousness of Christ. He was completely leveled. Bond, bound, uh, the bondage of the will by Luther is revolutionary in saying, I am bound to, uh, I am bound to my sin if I'm in myself. I, must be, I have no hope of defeating any amount of sin if I'm not in Christ. Um, so, the reformers are really lifted out the biblical understanding of sin on the whole, which elevates the biblical view of Christ, of course. Um, we deny that, that baptism has the effect of washing away original sin. That's not the purpose of baptism at all. Um, even our thoughts and desires are actually sin. Uh, and yes, the sin compounds. It gets worse when it's actualized. Jesus said this very thing because there was an erroneous view of sin among the Pharisees. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said to those of, uh, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Jesus says, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable. If you have a feeling of angst towards them, then you'll be liable of murder. It's sin, your feeling you have. You have heard, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So there's this description of our feelings and our attractions that are sinful. And Jesus describes it this way. It's deeper than just what we do outwardly. And really, by the way, this is the issue with the rich young ruler. I wish I had more time to unpack this. But when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus you know, challenges him about keeping his commandments, and um, 
He said, I've kept all of them. Now, our first inclination, oh, he's lying. No, he may not be lying. Outwardly, he may have, in fact, have a record in, Jewish, in the Jewish system of how he kept it. But Jesus knew that in his heart he didn't. But he didn't care. His heart, he had, he had divorced his actions from what his heart, as long as he didn't outwardly do it. It's a low view of sin and a low view of the original corruption that we have. Uh, the Roman Catholic response to the Reformers' corrective on this is very, very telling. Um, the Catholic Church condemns the, the doctrine of imputation that I described to you. The way I, what I said was the gospel. They condemn that kind of wording. And they condemn the idea that we say desires and attractions, um, these things are sinful in themselves. And... Uh, the Council of Trent, which was in a direct response to the Reformation, 1547, defines that by the grace of baptism, the guilt of original sin is ultimately, is ultimately remitted. The Reformers said, no, they said, yes, it is, and you're condemned for saying otherwise. And they literally said, you're condemned for that. Um, as to concupiscence, the Council declares that it remains in those that are baptized in order that they may struggle for the victory, but does no harm to those who resist it by the grace of God. Yea, he who shall be, have striven lawfully will be crowned. So you'll be given credit if you stand up against those desires, but the desires are not sins on their own. But really the most shocking uh, Roman Catholic address to this in their written works, in, in the Council of Trent's decisions. Um, knowing the Reformers were holding out Paul's various statements in doctrine of sin, 13 books of Paul and Peter's as well, but he, really the Reformers dwell on what the, the, the flesh is, the sins of the flesh, I could give you a quote from every one of Paul's epistles that describe um, sinfulness of our desires. But Romans 5 through 8 are really the magnum opus on this issue. It's really impossible to deny that Paul teaches that our desires are, are sinful. But this is what's so surprising about um, the Catholic Church in the days of the Reformation, but they haven't rescinded this. In the Council of Trent, listen to what it says. This concu uh, concupiscence which the apostles sometimes call sin. They acknowledge the apostle sometimes calls sin. He's talking about Paul. This holy synod declares that the Catholic Church has never understood it to be called sin. Let me say it again. The apostle sometimes calls it sin, concupiscence. But the holy synod, he's talking about Trent, declares that the Catholic Church has never understood it to be called sin as being truly and properly sin in those born again. But because of because of it, it is of sin and inclines to sin. And if anyone is of contrary sentiment, let him be anathema. Okay, this said that the apostle says this, but the church has never really said this. So it just gives you an inclination that their view of authority is the Bible, the church, and tradition, the church being the pope ultimately. So we would never say the apostle says this, but you know what, everybody? Now, liberals would say that, liberal theologians, you know, this is outdated because if we say the apostle says it and we don't like it, we lament, we're like, what are we going to do? This is tough because it's what it says. It's hard to bear under, but this is what the Bible, they say, well, the church never said that. Paul did, but we don't. It's a big problem, obviously, as you can imagine, for authority. Uh, so they acknowledge the apostle Paul calls uh, concupiscence sin, yet the council ends up disagreeing with the apostle. It's really astonishing when you lay it out. And it, it goes to a passage that I'll close with in a little bit in Romans chapter 7. Make sure I'm not, yeah, that's what I figured. Romans 7, Paul says, the apostle, so now, now, right now, the apostle, who is regenerate, writing an epistle, he says, so now, 
It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I do not want, is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Paul, on multiple occasions, talks about this battle of his desires within him in the flesh, and he tells us that we're going to have to battle this, um, always treating it as sin. The next statement, these desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are in themselves idolatrous and sinful. Now, again, the reason why we want to see them for what they are is, so if a person says that I have this inclination, it is who I am, and take it out of the realm of same-sex attraction, fill in any other sin. Um, I'm a, I, lie, I, I am a liar. That's what I do. I cannot tell the truth. I have trouble with it. Or I'm a glutton. I cannot stop. I have no control over what I ingest. You, whatever it may be. Um, if you have that view of it, then there's no, there's no way to address it, and there's no hope for the one mired in it. And so there's no escape from it, and it'll ultimately destroy them. Now, much people might get around and say, yeah, 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 you're right about that. You're right. That's who you are. That's okay. But there, it's a tormented existence because you're, you're harboring sin that will necessarily find its way out in some fashion or form at some point. Uh, and that's, that it, there, there's no opportunity for gospel application if it doesn't need the gospel because it's not sin. And it, that's a real lie, and it really leaves somebody in a bad way, and there's no way for them to see victory. We would say that the gospel applied. When you come to Christ, his righteousness is credited to you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. There's no sin that you still struggle with, that he won't help you in that struggle to start to overcome. I'm not telling you you'll live all your days, or you, it'll just be gone, and you'll never struggle with it again, or won't have to take all sorts of measures with the brethren and yourself to try to figure out how to defeat this. And we can think of all the ways that someone has a substance abuse issue. How do you help... It's got to be really, it's got to be, got to be careful, involved, and so forth. But we think that the grace of God through the Holy Spirit's work will give us, we think that's a gospel fruit. We think that the gospel is as a directive and a, a proclamation, but has a transformative effect as well. And this, by this concept of concupiscence, you put a category that's kind of untouchable or it's special on its own. And who's to say which ones are and which ones aren't? Uh, that's that's the, what develops from this. That's the practical application. Calvin articulates the reform position well. He said, but between Augustine and us, we can see that there is a difference of opinion. While he concedes that believers, as long as they dwell in mortal bodies, are so bound by inordinate desires that they are unable not to desire inordinately, yet he dare not call this disease sin. He's advocating for concupiscence. Content to designate, uh, designate it with the term weakness he teaches that it becomes sin only when either act or consent follows the conceiving or apprehension of it. That is, when the will yields to the first strong inclination. We, on the other hand, deem it sin when a man is tickled by any desire at all against the law of God. Indeed, we label sin that very depravity which begets in us desires of this sort. Likewise, Herman Bavink, who wrote several years after, he argues that sin is found Uh, not in the excess of passions, but in the manner and direction of those passions. Later he writes, this means on the one hand that the objects, images that the spirit and the body deposit in the soul as the seat of the feelings are impure, sinful, and corrupt. And on the other hand, that the feelings themselves are corrupt, reflect impurity, and are blurred and muddled. The whole of it's sinful. That's the point. So the practical application really comes back to this, this issue with labeling ourselves um, by the sins that we commit. And we don't do this about any other sin. 
uh, but the gay celibate Christian concept um, absolutely is, is grasping at something, because we'd say homosexuality is sinful, and to label yourself by a, a term that describes an activity would be in opposition to what we should be doing as people in Christ. Not denying that you may struggle with this, but you don't identify with this. And that's, there's, there's an important feature to this that declares something about what we believe concerning the gospel. Yes, if we're sitting and talking with one another, you know, someone might say, you know, I'm an alcoholic. What they mean to say is that they have been enslaved by alcohol, and they know that they can't touch it again because they'll probably get enslaved to it again, and they talk in those terms. Um, but, but that's different from saying, saying in some um, true identifying way that I am an alcoholic Christian, or I am a lying Christian, or whatever you may fill in the blank with. Um, so we just have to be very careful and judicious about these, these labels. The problem is the label itself being used by many of the side B advocates, it's, it's loud and it's proud and it's, it's not a concept of, oh, let's talk out how we're both struggling with this issue. It's, it's more of a, hey, recognize me for what my orientation is. It's not my fault. You should just make a place for me. And you do, whatever you do, don't tell me that God can help me uh, with this, this, these desires to change or curb these desires. Don't tell me that because it's who I am. And that's kind of the... That's the rub. Is, but I'm saying, if you tell me that, brother or sister, what Christian can I tell about any sin that they might be dealing with? What hope can I offer them? And it really is not, you can't just pick which sin you think the gospel can help transform. Um, so I, I, I think, and then if you just give it up altogether, I mean, what chance is there of not it finally running its course? It's, I mean, it'd be a rare instance where you just say, this is a sin I'm given over to. It is, what I, it is who I am and so forth, and I can't, I can't help it. That doesn't snowball into something else. Um, that's, that's the real challenge with taking that position. Now, the, the, the bottom paragraph, though, I think is very helpful and compassionate, uh, that I, and I want to close by just kind of slowly walking through some of the sentences. Nevertheless, and this is all true, Nevertheless, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction, now focusing on that issue, describe the desires as arising in them un unbidden and unwanted. They have no idea why. This is truly, I think it's erroneous when people are, sometimes they're Christians say, oh, you weren't born that way. No, maybe they were. I mean, they may have been. That's irrelevant to the larger point of what the gospel can do, but it, they just don't have a recollection of not sensing that. I have many of friends with people in our church that struggle that way. I don't remember ever being attracted to a woman, a man has told me, and vice versa. I just, I, I don't want this. I don't, I, this isn't what I want, but I just don't remember being different than this. It's all I know. Okay, debating over the particulars of all, I mean, that's the truth. They're just telling what they feel like, what, what their experience is, what they sense is true. So there's a real struggle. It's a real difficulty. It's, a, it's, it's an agony for them to deal with this. They read what the scripture says. They know it's true. They believe by the spirit of God is true. They, they may have inklings of, of, of uh, an ordered sexuality that's the Bible's ordered sexuality, but they're struggling constantly with this, and they don't want it. It's unbidden. They're not asking for it. It just comes. We also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors. It's complex as to what um, has made a person settle in on calling this their orientation or their identity, which always includes our own sin. That'll be part of it for sure. But it may include being sinned against in the past. People that may be, and I'm not saying every person who says they're same-sex attracted were sexually abused, but there is a lot of sexual abuse that's happened. And it absolutely confuses a person, especially a young child. Um, it confuses them terribly when they're harmed and maligned in the most violent of ways, which is sexual abuse, in my opinion. Um, uh, most kids would rather be beat up than sexually abused. They don't know that at the moment, but what it does in the long term, both are awful. Point being is, 
things happen, shaping influences happen that confuse a person as they grow older, and then they get information, they're told different things. It's very complex for people. It's not a simple thing for the vast majority of people who find themselves with this attraction. So it may include our own sinful nature, may include being sinned against in the past. As with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust, now it's going to expand this, extramarital lust, pornographic addictions, and all abusive sexual behavior. Any one of these areas of of deviance, that is, they deviate from God's norm, or perversion, all of these included in this. Um, It it is a huge pet peeve to me, um, and and I'm a man who struggles like anyone else does, but when someone's got a porn addiction and they're worried about someone being gay, give me a break. Give me a break. And if you watch the, the Maxwell trial that just went on and was all righteously indignant about what she did and what Epstein did and their child sex trafficking, and you watch porn, you're part of the problem. Porn, if you watch porn, you are contributing to those kinds of, that kind of sexual slavery. So stop with your judgment about homosexuality. Now, back to homosexuality, however. We have to deal with the fact that what the, God, what the Scripture says about it, these disordered desires, extramarital lust, pornographic addictions, all abusive sexual behavior. The actions of others, though never finally determinative, can be significant and influential. This should move us to compassion and understanding. We should not rush to judgment when someone says and reveals something about themselves and they're struggling with, because you're struggling with something too. We have to be an environment that accepts everybody, whatever their struggle is. It's just that the culture makes this a situation where I have to address it like this, and someone might surmise, well, they don't accept homosexuals. I'm not saying it at all. Jesus accepts all sinners. But you have to recognize it as sin and come, come and receive what the gospel has to offer. That's every one of us is a, is a sinner at, at heart in this respect. We need the righteousness of Christ. Um, so there has to be a compassion, understanding, and acceptance of people while we deal with the issue. Moreover, it is true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion. It could have been something thrust upon us that we never even had a chance to, to even figure out, and here we are in the midst of this confusion. It was thrust upon us. Sometimes we go after it. Sometimes it's a combo of both. That's the complexity of sin in our lives, that we just recognize it for what it is. We all experience sin at times as a kind of voluntary servitude. There are times where we get... We get um, we fall into a sin, and we have trouble getting out of it. And those, those are special instances where we need really special help from the brethren, from each for the Holy Spirit, of course, but sometimes we need help from, from our brothers and sisters because we can't without accountability get out of it. All right, said a lot today, but concupiscence is an important underlying doctrinal error that is being used, even though they don't use the term, the same idea is being used to promote the idea of gay Christianity. And I think the report is trying to let us know um, why this is a significant concept to lay hold of. All right, if you have questions, make sure you send me an email. It's 1040 already, and I'll try to address it at the beginning of next class. Um, And so next class, uh, we get into temptation and such. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today's opportunity that we had to overview a complex topic for sure. Pray that you help us uh, gather biblical clarity about this as we as we study this. I do, as always, pray for protection for the listeners where I may be wrong, and I'm sure I am, Lord, and forgive me. For, uh, have mercy on me for those areas. Show me those errors as I study and try to prepare. So in, in so far as things I say does not accord with your word, I pray that you would protect people from that error and that they would just forget what they heard. But in, in accord with your, accordance with your word where it's true, do pray that you convict us and comfort us at the same time. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.